If you're trying to figure out how to navigate the tricky tightrope of parenting while you have questions, doubts, and wonderings about your spiritual journey, our podcast is for you. It doesn't matter if your kids are smalls, middles, or bigs. We'll explore what and how we're deconstructing from churchianity, harmful belief systems, and diving deep into the ways we can work this out in parenthood. We're also going to work through ideas for reconstructing a space for our families to thrive under new systems of love and freedom. We can't wait to bring you some hope that you're not alone and that it's really okay, even good, to explore all the possibilities that may have felt closed off in the past. Our podcast is going to offer you grace and space to be exactly where you are and who you are. We're really glad you're here and we're excited for today's episode. Listen in. Everybody wants to experience union with God, but precious few want to discover the unity within themselves. Mike Morell. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We have Mike Morell on today. We're super excited. Mike's an author, co-founder of the Buzz Seminar, and founding organizer of Wild Goose Festival. But some of you probably know him from the book, The Divine Dance, that he wrote with Richard Rohr. And of course, there's countless other ways that you are showing up for us and sharing your wisdom. And we love everything that you're doing. So we're just really thankful to talk with you today and to share more about who you are and, and what you stand for. So thanks, Mike, for coming on. Thank you, Liz and Esther. It's so wonderful to be with y'all today. We are so excited. I think probably a lot of our listeners know who you are in some way, shape, or form, but can you tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like, what your family looks like, and then outside of some of that kind of stuff, what really makes your heart come alive? Mm, Thank you. It's such a good question. It's like the writer Annie Dillard once wrote, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, at least, I can tend to have like an idealized vision of myself and who I am. But when I look at like the daily rhythms of my life, that shows where I'm actually at and gives me an opportunity to reflect on how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. So for me, I am a uh, lifetime self-employed person who has developed, shall we say, nocturnal work habits that probably came from when my children were especially small. My day typically looks like waking up a little bit later and diving into ideally some kind of practice, whether that's a practice of being in touch with my own energies, of being in touch with higher energies, or even letting go and releasing and and circulating energy. And then beginning my work day, usually with a smoothie like I have now. And diving into work for several hours until it's time to pick my kids up from school. Then from there, it's usually some amalgam of hanging out with the kiddos and trying to get a little bit more work done (laughs) till evenings when I do bedtime routines with my youngest. Our youngest, Nova, is eight years old and she has Down syndrome. So certain developmental differences that... uh, you know, still make a fairly bounded and structured bedtime a really valuable thing. Taking care of working through all of that. And then ideally, you know, spending time with people I care about and or going for a swim in an indoor lap pool. Rinse and repeat, then often another late night of wrapping certain things up if I'm not participating in some local community stuff. That's a, a real snapshot of my average day. 
you know, I was recently re-diagnosed with ADHD, working with my wonderful therapist, working on creating daily life as rhythm and flow rather than being led by the tyranny of to-do lists, Mm. which I don't know about y'all or if you even have one, but my to-do list is like 12 pages long. And so (laughs) it's like, cut that shit out. You need to look at at life by rhythms, what you want to proactively create and what you intentionally open up space for to take care of maybe one of those items at a time and not be so ruled by it. That's a real learning curve for me right now. What makes my heart come alive is having life-giving conversations like this, frankly, not always literally on podcasts, of course, but connecting with chosen family, with people who are on a similar path, and then also living those values out in very simple ways. I really love that idea. Already, we're what, like five minutes in, and I feel like you've given me so much to think about. That idea, though, that you and your therapist are talking through of living your life, not a slave to the to-do list. Obviously, that can be so hard, especially when you have kids, because you're so much of your life, right, is like taking care of other people's needs and all of that. But that's just like such a powerful way of rethinking the day. Simple, but like really powerful. Yeah, it, it has been wonderful. She's given me some very specific flow charts and ways to operationalize that, setting alarms for myself, but also mm. make sure they're soothing. So it's not that I'm constantly being rattled by alarms, Yeah, making sure I take the time to feed myself and take yeah. time for these spiritual practices that nourish me. And, you know, remember that I'm a person in the midst of all the roles that I hold. Mm. And I just think that's so important for all of us, especially parents. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking a little bit about the first time I heard about Wild Goose. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was fairly conservative in my belief system. And a friend of mine went to Wild Goose. And I thought, oh, you know, he's a little out there, my friend, and he's going to this <laughs> thing. And I was pretty <laughs> judgmental mm-hmm. of wild goose to be honest with you and so <laughs> it's kind of funny now to to get to know you and have a conversation with you and you were one of the founders perhaps your faith journey has shifted over time i'm guessing just a little so, bit <laughs> <laughs> what did it look like as you were growing up and then where did it shift and how did it shift and maybe a phrase now that you would describe your faith journey Mm. Or describe it in a phrase. Growing up, I would say fervent. Mm. I was adopted by a Connecticut Yankee and an Appalachian hillbilly who had relocated to the God-intoxicated, Christ-haunted Bible Belt of the American South, where they took faith very seriously as a lifeline, frankly, of you know escaping some pretty miserable lives they had growing up. My mom prayed the born again prayer invitation of Pat Robertson on the 700 club night after night until she felt like it took and, you know, got my dad to do the same and said, we got to get in church. And so I grew up as a denominational mutt. We spent several years in a, a Southern Baptist context. And then my parents who were, you know, spiritual seekers in their own way had a baptism in the Holy Spirit experience that initiated us into the Pentecostal world. 
which for them entailed quitting 20 year smoking habits, cold turkey, when they had this, you know, powerful spiritual experience. It changed their lives. And we were in church pretty much every time the doors were open. It's very fervent. When my parents got disillusioned around some of the, shall we say, scandalousness that seemed to especially happen in the Pentecostal context, and some of their own pet doctrines weren't respected, and, and in some ways they weren't the church wasn't as conservative as my mom wanted to be because I ended up being homeschooled for seven years. And so we were like in a more kind of fundy subculture of even a fundamentalist background. They eventually gave up on church probably when I was in my mid-teens. But I connected with a conservative Presbyterian church that happened to have an arts ministry, happened to let the boys and girls hang out together in youth group, as opposed to the segregation that the homeschooled wing in my Pentecostal church was advocating for. So by the time I was 18, I'd spent time in three different conservative Protestant backgrounds. Southern Baptists were all about willpower and what to do. And the Pentecostals were all about emotion and, and how to feel. And Presbyterians, the PCA folks, at least fancied themselves thinkers and, you know, how to think as long as you were thinking the authorized thoughts, you know. And that had a, an interesting effect on me as a teenager, uh, recognizing a certain, a certain relativism very early on. All three of these denominations thought they had the corner market on, on the truth. And granted, they all had some interesting things to say and things about their heritage that were, you know, intriguing, but they also had a lot of hubris. They also had a lot of pride and thought they were the only thing on the block. And many of my peers in each of those groups had only grown up and seen that particular group and didn't really question what other people thought or believed. And so even though it was primarily white Southern conservative denominations, it, it gave me a certain breadth of experience that had me wonder what else might be out there. I think that brought me to a place of, of believing differently about many things, eventually spending time about a decade in this very decentralized house church movement, where we had open participatory gatherings and we had no paid clergy. Women and men were equal. That movement introduced me to Christian mystics. When I got into college and undergrad and had a, a steady internet connection for the first time in the computer lab, uh, <laughs> you know, discovering the internet, I ended up creating this uh, links directory that ended up having like 10,000 websites that networked what came to be known as the emerging church conversation, I think late 90s, early 2000s. So yeah, I mean, a lot of my shifts were probably 20 years ago rather than 10 years ago because I'm old. <laughs> shifts from, from Christian nationalism to a more Jesus-informed globalism and localism, from a rationalistic and apologetic approach to faith to an embodied mysticism, from growing up young earth creationist to embracing an evolutionary cosmology, from being an end times enthusiast waiting for the rapture around the corner to embracing a more realized eschatology, from homophobia to LGBTQ inclusion. And it's not to say that, well, then once I settled all that, I haven't changed. I, I certainly have. You know, in the past decade, I would say that I've deepened shifts and experienced nuanced changes around going from being the sort of apolitical anarchist wannabe to a reluctant Democrat to a pragmatic socialist who wants to live in a permaculture co-housing community somewhere in these mountains. <laughs> 
uh, and you know, having a having a deeper you know understanding of of the impacts of of systemic racism, complications in in patriarchy, and and also learning a lot more about disability on a practical level, mm-hmm. parenting a child with uh, with just some developmental disabilities. So yeah, there there have been a lot of shifts along those lines, but I would say that. The biggest shift for me has been less about moving from thinking X to thinking Y and more about how I reframe the relative value of, of thinking itself as it's situated in a larger backdrop of qualities like being and awareness, embodiment, true feeling. A lot of this came up for me when I eased up on thinking of union with God sort of externally as a focus and rather began resting in a more unit of seeing Mm-hmm. Seeing what, you know, the educator Parker Palmer calls a hidden wholeness or what my uh, co-author Richard Rohr calls everything belonging. Right. That's That's been one of the biggest shifts for me. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about this idea of Christian mysticism or yourself as a Christian mystic? I think that's like a, a probably a term that a lot of people don't exactly know what that is. So if you could enlighten us a little on that. Sure. If we're going to get uh, biblical about it, there's a lot of <laughs> language in the New Testament that talks about the mystery of Christ. And I think at one point, Paul, or maybe it's someone attributed, Paul says something about, this is the mystery, Christ in you, the hope and glory. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of the indwelling of God that is, you know, referred to variously in Christian scriptures as, you know, the indwelling of the spirit of God or the indwelling of Christ and actually um, being able to sense and live by the energies of, of the indwelling of God is the heart of specifically Christian mysticism. Shockingly, growing up in all these different denominations, including Pentecostalism, we never really explored that very much. In Pentecostalism, you know, we would experience what we call the baptism of the spirit, which was more like God coming on to us, like washing over us and having us feel some things. But the idea of a daily abiding uh, within God and God within us wasn't really something that my Protestant background prepared me for. Mm-hmm. Ironically, my, one of my first encounters with Christian mysticism was simply sitting in my Presbyterian church one day before our service started. Maybe it was a youth service or something. And I was reading John 17. It's it's called typically in, in most Bibles, Jesus' high priestly prayer. And it's basically this place where he's he's praying to his Abba, his father, and says, just as you indwell me and I indwell you, let them, my followers, indwell the rest in us and us indwell them. And not just them, but you know, for all future generations, there's all this kind of like interdwelling, interbeing, mm-hmm. interpenetrative language mm-hmm. that... I'd never even read in my Bible before. And, you know, in my late teens, I'd read the Bible a lot, in the, you know, here in the South. And so I was like, what is this? How can it be practical? And why has no one really talked about this? Yeah. Um, Yesterday, I was on a walk with my husband who feels a little untethered right now in his faith journey. Like, should he still consider himself a Christian? And he just said, how is this all playing out where we're all one? And was Jesus really different from us? Was he God? We were just having all of those weird, petty, mystical conversations. Mm -hmm. And we got to this place where I said, I just have started to view the universe a little bit. What does Richard Rohr call the the universal Christ? Mm -hmm. Larger. And we came upon the miracle of the fish in the boat. 
like Jesus getting the fish. And I was like, what if Jesus was so connected to the fish <laughs> that he literally like Dr. Doolittle-ish, but he was so <laughs> connected because he is interconnected with nature that he could call those fish into the boat. What if it was more something like yeah. that? And then the fish nourish. And I personally want to be buried in a biodegradable pod. Thanks to Ted Lasso. I want my body to nourish back into the earth. So as the fish come and nourish us at times, then we can give back. Is it more like that or not? So we were all over the place in this more contemplative, reflective, mysterious place. And there's no answer. I'm not like, that was the way it was. Jesus called the fish. I have no idea. It's more like the what if. Is that what you sense? It's more like the what ifs? I think there are a lot more open-ended questions for, for me as well. I find it interesting when there are these sort of debates between conservatives and progressives or say original naivete faith versus deconstructionists around the identity of Jesus. Like, is Jesus divine and the son of God or is, is Jesus, you know, a human being like us? And of course, the Orthodox confession of faith has always been both fully human and fully divine. But for so many of us, that's just like another cliche that uh, basically doesn't mean much of anything. But Athanasius, third century church father, who was pivotal with like, say, the Nicene Creed, very Orthodox guy, said God became human so that humanity can become God. Yeah. And so, you know, there's this idea of Christ as whatever uniqueness we might ascribe to him. He's also seen in the mystical tradition, and I would argue in the New Testament, as sort of a ladder, as a template, as a model, as an older brother. And in John 17, he's like explicitly saying all of these things that we might confessionally attribute if we're hedging exclusively to Jesus, this sort of divine indwelling, this empowerment, this sense of, of, of presence and communion, is saying, I want this for all of my, my people. I think the letter of 1 John has similar language of, you know, we've had this fellowship with the Father and the Son. We can all have this, this fellowship. So I think that that was like the beginning of my journey into Christian mysticism. And then as I connected with this house church community that also happened to have a small publishing house. I read a book called Beholding and Becoming by Jerry Coulter, and it had a very simple premise, which is that we, we become by beholding. So the gaze of the heart upon God helps us to develop the virtues and attributes of God more so than any external program of attempted imitation. So it was learning some very simple contemplative prayer practices that were focused upon resting and beholding love, beholding beauty, beholding simple presence, uh, you know, to, you know, God and to myself that started me out on that journey. It really simplifies it. I think it can feel really complicated when we're unsure of what's right and what's wrong and what's right and what's wrong all the time, right? But this just really simple idea of just sitting with God, internalizing God, grounding ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. These sort of healing practices that we really all should be doing, like regardless of what you believe, right? These are healing grounding practices for human yeah. beings who have been wounded by the world. It really does simplify things. But why do you, do you feel like someone might not see it as simple? Why do you think so many people are resistant to this idea of Christian mysticism or this idea of connecting to God on that more like energetic level? 
I think a lot of people understandably go to easy culprits like beliefs around original sin or total depravity to say we're indoctrinated into not feeling like we're trustworthy enough to have a, a simple and direct path to God. I take a little bit more of a nuanced view in that I don't think that the ideas like original sin and total depravity came out of a vacuum. I think they came out of people's felt experiences of themselves when they're feeling dysregulated, when they're feeling alienated from God, self, community, the natural world. There's a tendency to feel that way. That's just unavoidable in a lot of life, at least a lot of civilizational life, the way we've organized ourselves for the last several thousand years, which is the world in which our religious traditions have evolved. So I think there's always this tension of not feeling connected and, you know, depending on the nature of that dysregulation, as we said in our Bible Belt culture, if you really had a testimony, meaning you grew up in some wild and boundless life, for a lot of people, they come to religion and even spirituality to learn the external rules for living. And I think there's a place for that. I mean, I think that we as parents probably understand pedagogically, there's a place to like overtly teach our kids certain rules for, uh, you know, how to not burn their hand on the stove. And, you know, ideally, we're, we're giving them some grounding that probably feels very practical, very narrative uh, at times. But I also think that there's the possibility of coming to religion and spirituality, not to simply conserve the best of our traditions and, and have like the hard and fast rules for living, but to begin opening ourselves, to begin asking questions and to begin resting in presence and being educated that way. These approaches are, are kind of typified archetypally all the way in, in Genesis 1 with the, the two trees in the garden, right? Like we have this tree of knowledge of good and evil that I think represents our discursive thinking represents our, um, our self-reflexive consciousness that wants to label everything as good and evil and wants to sort of figure out what paths lead to good things for us and what things to avoid. But the problem is that it ends up leading to like endless judgment of ourselves and others that often isn't very helpful. But then you also have this other tree, you have this tree of life. The text is very sparse and it's open to many different interpretations, but but I see this tree of life as a, a tree of unitive scene. It is this tree of, of noticing the wholeness in all things. And that doesn't mean that there aren't some things that we'll embrace and other things that aren't as healthy for us. But resting in that, that tree of life, I forget the exact word you used, Liz, but it was something about what do we take into us? And for me, I've often seen this contemplative or mystical path as one of of partaking. I think it's one of the letters to Peter that talks about us being partakers of the divine nature. Mm -hmm. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I like to eat. So <laughs> it really resonates <laughs> with me, this idea that we're, we're nourished into being. And yeah. so, you know, what does it mean to feed our inner being? It's been a central question as mm -hmm. I've evolved along my uh, mystical path. So I was today years old. That's what I'm going to just say. When I heard this idea of these two trees, one being that binary, either or good or bad, that doesn't lead to life, and it leads to judgment. And then there's a tree of life. So the warning, just that idea, the overarching idea of like, oh, are you going to choose this binary way of viewing the world, which is going to lead to destruction and death and judgment and a harm or this beautiful tree of life, 
that is unifying. Ah, so I, I'm like, I've been to church today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really glad that that resonates with you, Esther. And if this were a whole different podcast interview, I could go into my passion for for looking at our deep time anthropological record of our evolution as a species and how I, I believe that our our hunter-gatherer immediate return mm-hmm. forager days were this kind of first naivete as a species where we experienced living off the abundance of our surroundings in a way that was like unto a tree of life way of living. Mm-hmm. And I actually believe that the, um, the story in Genesis 1 and 2 are these brilliant parables around how we lost that sense of a fourfold union, the sense of spirit, yeah. self, other, and world, and plunged into the world of duality, which wow. is typified by the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that that characterizes our agrarian world, our more sedentary world, where suddenly we have to become more acquisitive in order to survive. And we begin developing property and we begin putting uh, gender stratification and class stratification in place. There's this whole interesting conversation happening around that and how the biblical narrative is actually a pretty faithful parabolic telling of this tragedy um, that we experience, but also the opportunity within it to really grow up as a species. And if we had further time, I would then talk about Jesus as sort of a hunter-gatherer out of time and how he embraces these more ancient ideas of of conviviality, of table fellowship, of, of the miracle and the meal and saying, let's take no thought for tomorrow. Let's consider the lilies of the field. Let's mm. let's replug into that stream of immediacy and abundance. And I guess I did just give a slight preview of that. <laughs> That's really, really a whole interesting concept to me. And it just, it makes so much sense. And I think so many people are are looking for these different ways of looking at the Bible that make sense with what their soul is telling them feels right and yeah. feels whole. I'm so glad you shared that with us. Well, and I even think about the ways this plays out in parenting is the idea of, are we going to go to the tree of knowledge of good and evil of like, you're all good or you're all bad instead of this, Hey kids, we don't want that. We want the tree of life for you. So I just, mm-hmm. I'm, so blown away. We'll get right back to today's podcast episode, but we wanted to give a shout out to a few of our Patreon supporters, Raf Zayas, Aaron Marie Elizabeth, and Kristen Cook-White. Thank you so much for your support. For just $3 a month, you can be a part of our private Facebook group and help us keep the lights on at Deconstructing Mamas. And now back to the episode. I want to go back to that quote that you had in the beginning where we said, I'm just going to read it again. Everybody wants to experience union with God, but precious few want to discover unity within themselves. Something I read that you wrote about how you get lots of engagement with other people when you talk about the connecting to the divine, but then it's like crickets Mm -hmm. when you talk about connecting with self. Can you give us like a little bit of a look behind the scenes of what you've discovered, why that might be? What is the resistance for us to connect with ourselves. Yeah, I think that most of us seek to merge with what we imagine will help us feel vibrant and alive and and deeply okay. And for many of us, this is to be found, we think, outside of ourselves, whether it's in food or drink or drugs or relationships or even God. We just have this like urge to merge with something that's beyond us. But 
what I found is that even when I'm receiving any of these elements in abundance, and there's nothing wrong with any of these elements in proportion, there might not actually be a me who's present to receive them. You know, it's kind of like the colanders that my Italian mom and grandma used to strain pasta when I was growing up. The water is just going to pass right on through it and down the drain. The self most of us have just isn't built to hold in what it is that we receive. And so, you know, I think for a lot of us who are undergoing this journey of deconstruction, or as I prefer to name it, composting, Mm -hmm. we need to let a lot breathe and decompose. And it's not just the content of our beliefs, like we've, we've been talking about, but the very containers. And so what I like to invite folks in my circles to consider is how to develop a more loving and trusting relationship with ourselves with our bodies, with our feelings, with our minds, and the spaces in between. Why does this not get much engagement? I think that it doesn't it just doesn't sound as, uh, as sexy in some ways, but when it really lands for someone, it's actually quite exciting. Mm-hmm. It can be electric to consider that the me that I was only told to lose, but never to cultivate, which is, you know, a pretty selective use of Jesus' teachings because whatever happened to like also loving with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But when we we actually see that this self is something to cultivate, I think it could be the key to everything. You know, developing this ground and base of our consciousness before considering such lofty possibilities as God just strikes me as a, a more credible and, and realistic and slow and loving place to begin. I think you hit on this really important point. We're taught to lose ourselves forever and ever and ever. We're taught that. And then you come to this place where someone suggests that maybe you should look inward and it's incredibly threatening Mm -hmm. (laughs) in many ways, right? Both to individuals and to the institution of church at large, right? People have lots to say when I talk about like even just self-care and self-love, the importance of that. So yeah, I think it really is this very, very threatening idea to so many. But then on the flip side, like you said, when it lands, it's so incredibly healing and it starts this this whole movement, right? Because again, like you said, this is something that from you're working from the ground up, right? You're working on like basic human needs here. I think mm-hmm. you even said it in the beginning in kind of your own routine, just like feeding yourself. I mean, I struggle with that too. You're doing so many things. You're not even, you're literally not even thinking about yourself in the way that you need to in order to ground and cultivate. It's a tricky concept, but it's such a cool and important concept for everything that comes after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just really am enjoying this conversation. So if we take all these, what seem simple and also might feel high and lofty and we go, okay, let's bring it all the way down into our parenting. Like this idea of contemplative practices and mysticism and this tree of life. And I started to allude to versus the tree of knowledge and good and evil. How do we help our kids And I know we can't give our kids anything we don't have ourselves, but how can we cultivate an environment for our kids, for them to connect both with the divine and with themselves? And I always say with the human and the holy, right? Which we have both within us. So the honest answer is how I do it is in fits and starts, right? (laughs) Because, you know, it's it's always a journey, but But I agree, showing our children in age-appropriate ways how to cultivate loving and trusting relationships with themselves is is foundational. 
practices that can slow us down and take us away at least a little while from, you know, screens and frenetic activity is, is so valuable. And so, you know, how this looked for me, my oldest, who's 15 now, was, you know, we would literally do Centering Prayer uh, some as a child. There's actually a, a book called Journey to the Heart, Centering Prayer for Children that has been around for a while now. And it's a, it's a super helpful one. And also taking advantage of more, you know, spacious outdoor spaces when possible, i.e. nature is, is very valuable. Full disclosure, when you uh, when you raise a child with hopefully less fear and existential angst around spirituality and, and religion than maybe some of us grew up with, it's very unpredictable what will happen. My oldest considers themselves uh, agnostic these days and is very upfront with me about that. Rolls their eyes at passionate God conversations and, and Jesus talk, but is still open to having sometimes, uh, even in adolescence, vulnerable conversations and, and still feels at least occasionally safe to come to me with, with philosophical conversations and questions that they're asking and enjoys horseback riding as a, a practice that is, is grounding and centering. So that's been like the journey recently with my, my oldest. And then with my youngest, it's like not clear to me what all she grasps or understands. Sometimes, you know, at mealtime when she wants to, she wants to lead a prayer, she'll take our hands, she'll bow her head, and then she'll narrate some epic story that she makes up on the fly. That's just kind of like fairy tale quality. And then she will say the end. Then <laughs> <laughs> it's time to eat. So I think that parenting is is one of many possibilities for reality testing my my faith and my spirituality and the sort of contrast between who I might imagine myself to be and who I am. Right. I love what you're talking about with with your oldest that they might not share the same belief system as you, but that basic need for connection and vulnerability you've done enough to foster an environment, right? Where they can come to you and have these conversations regardless of whether or not they believe what you believe and vice versa. So I think that's kind of like what you were talking about earlier, Esther, just this idea of what they're seeing from us and then being able to bring that to their own life. Our kids don't have to believe what we believe and see things the way that we see things. We just want them to be able to have their own mind and have this sort of sense of love for themselves and trust in themselves. Thank you. Yeah, that's the goal. And, and I would say on our best days together, uh, <laughs> they feel safe to uh, have conversations with mm -hmm. me. On other days, you know, it can feel like dad is either too silly or too serious. Mm -hmm. and, you know, <laughs> it's a it's a calibration in the teen years, at least for me. That makes so much sense. Having gone through those with my own kids, but I know that I personally thought that the goal was I remember a statistic, this was so crazy, probably came out of Focus on the Family, that said 80% of children will take on the belief system of their parents. Mm. And the goal was make sure that those 20% don't exist in your home. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Now I look at that and I think, oh my gosh, that's so sad. Those poor 80%, <laughs> how do we free them? The shift in mindset of 
wow, we can learn from them. They can learn from us. We can be in cooperation with them Mm -hmm. and grow together and them being their own person and you being able to be your own person. That kind of is my goal. I love this idea that trail mix is a lot more fun than a box of M&Ms. You know, it's a lot more fun to eat. It's a lot more fun to be with people who are different from you. Mm-hmm. And you have so much to learn and grow from. But I just think about the shift in my own heart of, oh, no, that 20% versus, oh, no, that 80%. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that too, Esther, like many, many times. It's really these sort of fear-based tactics. I mean, when you said that, I was immediately like, oh, my gosh, I remember that anxiety of like just wanting to make sure that I am that parent at some point. This was before I had my own kids. But I remember thinking that even as a young person, like, okay, I need to make sure that my house is for the Lord so that, oh, gosh, giving me anxiety just thinking about it. But, Mike, I'm curious what maybe your kids have taught you about living sort of this contemplative lifestyle? What have they taught you that maybe you thought you were doing and then realized, never mind, I'm actually not? Or is maybe something new that you've learned? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it immediately brings me back to a memory that I, I feel considerable consternation about. One time when my oldest was really young and we were, you know, I was teaching them how to do centering prayer. And It was nighttime before bed. They were sleepy and wanted to go to bed. All they wanted to do was like keep climbing on me and crawling all over me. And I remember one point like losing my temper and being like, no, sit here. We're doing centering prayer. And I thought, (laughs) am I doing? I was probably tired and cranky myself. Yes. Holy losing the plot, Batman. Uh, (laughs) It was such a reality check for me. If this isn't about love and if this isn't about togetherness, then it's, Mm. it's not about anything. Yeah. I love that it's so real. Like parenting's rough and it's not like, oh, wow, we interviewed Mike Brown. He's this mystic and (laughs) he's just going to have all this perfect life and perfect answers. And it's like, yeah, yeah, really? When it it all comes down to it, we're all just bumbling along. Yeah. Can we go back to the children and the trees, the two trees Mm -hmm. for a minute? Because I am so blown away by that today. How do you see those two trees? the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then this tree of life. Taking those two trees and having it play out in the way that we interact, especially with our kids, how would you say that they're very different from one another? Yeah. Well, you know, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, especially with regards to parenting, I think is front-loaded for me with like other people's paradigms. What parenting method am I to use? What is the right thing? What is the wrong thing? What is going to scar my children for life? And (laughs) what is going to ensure that they definitely have a healthy and and peaceful coexistence? Obviously, reading and learning has its place. Discursive thinking has its place. But for me, following the thread of the tree of life and parenting is following the thread of attention, Mm. uh, attentiveness. Mm. The French Jewish and Christian philosopher, mystic and activist, Simone Weil, she said, attention taken to its highest degree is the same thing as prayer. Mm. It presupposes faith and love. And absolutely unmixed attention is prayer. So when I slow down, instead of like immediately problematizing my children or myself, if I'm in an afflictive moment, I just try to pay attention. 
and follow the thread of aliveness. Like what's what's real right now? If my youngest is screaming at me in a fury and I can't quite understand the words she's saying, do I just get hooked by that? Do I simply get upset as well? Or can I pause for a minute and see what's maybe going on with her heart and what it is that she's wanting in that moment or needing in that moment? And just being able to take a pause and to pay a little bit of unmixed attention to me is the fruit of the tree of life, which of course scripture says can heal the nations. When I can remember that and be responsive rather than reactive, that makes a world of difference. What would you want your kids, both of them, to know about God, faith, and themselves if you had one thing that you would hope that they would take with them in their life? Mm-hmm. What would that be? Yeah, as simplistic as, as it might sound, I think just the existential sense of God is love. And knowing that love isn't always sentimental, isn't always a hallmark card, but nonetheless, that there's this guiding force of, of attraction, of draw, of belonging, but also that they belong to themselves first and foremost instilling that sense of having a loving and trusting relationship with themselves, that they can trust the attachments and connections they make with the outside world, which in my life certainly includes God, um, even as the source and, and fountain of that love. But even if in the case of my oldest, that never becomes like a steady part of their, their cosmos, just knowing that there's you know loving interrelationship that is accessible that's possible in life, that we can choose to you know, surround ourselves by, by community, by our inherited family, by our chosen family, by the world around us, and develop that trusting relationship with life in a way that can hopefully carry them each through the more afflictive times, the times when the world doesn't seem like a safe place mm-hmm. and a nurturing place, to develop that resilience that doesn't callous their hearts in the face of um, the real pain and disappointment that can occur across the course of a life well lived. That's what I try to instill in them on a regular basis. And probably my biggest fear as a parent are times that I I do not embody that in a way that itself feels trustworthy. Mm -hmm. We're with you. If you look at your life right now, What's something that you have to show yourself a lot of grace for? And then what do you want? How do you want to make room or space for something, perhaps for your future self? Mm. Yes, I want to show myself grace for all the things. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's a cliche, but I need so much grace. I recently was curious about some of my own seeming failures to adult on a regular basis and some of my own, you know, processing of, of burnout, et cetera, you know, recently diagnosed, re-diagnosed, actually, I had one from years ago, but with, with ADHD and with complex family trauma and, you know, just kind of looking at these ways that I'm not neurotypical, ways that I might, you know, see and process the world differently than whatever supposed standard is out there. And it just gave me an opportunity to feel some grace with myself about how 
that has manifested throughout my life as anxiety, as overwhelm, wondering how other people can seemingly be so productive and Mm -hmm. run their own business and be seemingly an amazing, really present parent. And then maybe, you know, go to grad school on the side. I dropped out of a full ride master's degree in this field called strategic foresight when my oldest was born, because I just didn't see how it was possible to have a newborn and work full time and also do grad school. And that, you know, has haunted me to this day. It was a really exciting field. It was a path not taken, at least not, not so far. So I think grace for myself from my own sky high expectations of myself. And again, slipping more into that tree of life diet, imbibing uh, digestion, being able to, the grace that I want and the space that I want for myself is to just take more time to digest my own life, to be present more for the ordinary moments, and also to just take time regularly to make sure I've digested the previous day or the previous week. This early 20th century esoteric teacher that I really appreciate, uh, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff. He talks about how we need three forms of food for our organism to thrive. Physical food, the air we take in, and impressions. When I consider impressions especially, and how many undigested impressions I can accumulate, just moving from thing to thing to thing so frenetically so fast, it ends up being a very ungracious space where I'm forcing myself to to soldier on. And so really just taking that time, even in ordinary moments of the day, to remember myself, to both feel like the internal process is going on with me without judgment, but also to be attentive to what's going on outside of me. The simple things that my mind might edit out in its tree of knowledge, default programming, that says, oh, you know, this is a window, this is a desk, I'm on the floor, you know, my feet are on the floor. But to be like, kind of have this this new heart and new mind to everything, like, what am I actually taking in right now? This miracle that's all around me. That's a growth curve for me is to like, begin to habituate that more in the ordinary moments of the day, where I'm truly receiving food, air, and impressions, and I'm actually digesting my life. Wow. This has been fabulous. Oh, I don't even want to transition to this <laughs> because it's just been so good for us to talk to you. If people want more of your wisdom, we know you co-authored the book, The Divine Dance with Richard Rohr. And so that I think is a great place for people to start to get to know you, but you're doing some really good things now and some really interesting things. Can you tell us more about that and where people can find you? Sure, absolutely. Would would love to stay in touch with anyone. And you know, the best way to do that, I do have an email newsletter called Optimistic Meditations, mystic spelled like, you know, mysticism. And my hub on the internet is uh, my website, mikemorell.org. And, you know, on it, speaking of the divine dance, I give away a bonus chapter to the book that describes sort of my own personal experiences with God as Trinity, God as relationship, and how that informed my inspiration to want to participate in that absolutely remarkable project, you know, getting to work with Father Richard. It's a free download on my site. Talks about actually one of my dark night of the soul experiences that paved the way for 
one of the most profound mystical experiences I've ever had in my life of experiencing God in and as the relationships that sustain me. There are also like a few practices that are in the book, uh, the bonus chapter that aren't in the, the hard copy of the book, ways that you can practice this interbeing and we space with friends as well as with God. So people can find that at mikemorell.org forward slash bonus chapter. And that also connects you to my newsletter where I try to share practical spirituality, some of along the lines of what we've been talking about today on a regular basis. So, you know, that's the best way to be in touch. Also, I'm, you know, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the tagline at real Mike Morell. Happy to uh, connect with you all there as well. Is there a fake Mike Morell? Is that the question? Oh man, there's so many imitators. <laughs> They're all trying. I do like to get so interested when I see at real. I'm like, oh my gosh, somebody out there was just trying to impersonate this person. <laughs> it happens sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. This was wonderfully enlightening, healing in so many ways. And so we're just thankful for for you and for your time. Absolutely. And, and thanks so much for what you all do. This podcast fills such a needed space for people who are reimagining and reformulating their faith where the rubber hits the road, which is, you know, for those of us with children, how are we raising them? So really appreciate what you all are doing. Thanks Thank so much. Well, that's it for this episode on the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We love that you tuned in and hope that this gave you a little bit of grace and space for your soul to breathe. Don't forget to catch up on any of our episodes that you missed. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Deconstructing Mamas. That's where you'll find all the information that you need about the podcast, as well as on both of our websites, estherjoygets.com and elizabethpetters.com, as well as our brand new website, deconstructingmamas.com. If you would like to support the podcast, please leave us a review where you listen and especially tell others about the show. Thanks for listening and come back again for our next episode. We can't wait to be on the other side of your headphones.